Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. In just under a decade, Canadians witnessed one of the premier functions of a first world democracy, the legalization and regulation of a brand new industry, the nicotine vaping industry. Vaping was not created by government, nor was it engineered by multinational corporations. It was built by consumers and independent entrepreneurs seeking a better way to quit smoking. But after an exhaustive regulatory process which saw Health Canada put its stamp of approval on the technology and the federal government passing the regulatory framework into law, a moral panic over teen vaping now threatens to quash the industry. Joining us today to discuss the turbulence in the Canadian vaping industry is Ian Irvine, Professor of Economics at the Department of Economics, Concordia University in Montreal. Ian, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Great to be with you. So currently, the Canadian vaping industry is under threat of a federal excise tax, restrictions on nicotine concentration, and a potential ban on flavors. After an exhaustive regulatory process, you know, Health Canada put a stamp of approval on it. What do you think of the teen uh, vaping moral panic that we're seeing? I think moral panic is a very good description of it because I think there's an overreaction to the vaping practices of teens. If you turn the clock back a little bit and look at how much smoking was undertaken by the current adults when they were at school in the 1990s, you would see that their daily smoking rates were about 25, 28% in the mid 1990s. What happened over time was that uh, we developed a whole series of policies aimed at young people to discourage them. We developed a culture against smoking and that worked very well. And so we have come to the point today where we don't have anything like that number of young people involved in vaping, and vaping is a much less toxic activity than cigarettes. Today on uh, daily vapors amount to, oh, depending upon whether you look at, um, you know, grade eight, grade 10, grade 12 in, in high school, daily vapors might be five, six, seven percent of the population uh, of, of that age group. and they are consuming a fraction of the toxins in each e-cigarette that their parents would have been taking in when they were smoking in the 1990s. So if you think in terms of the toxin intake that um, teens are um, uh, vaping into their system, it's about 1 50th of the toxin intake that the parents' generation were taking in through smoking in the 1990s. Now, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm not using this comparison to um, indicate that it's okay that everybody's vaping. I would strongly advise kids not to vape, to stay away from nicotine because nicotine is a dependence forming substance. There's no doubt about that. But you asked me about the moral panic. Uh, I do think we live in an age of hyperbole. We live in an era of moral superiority. Uh, everybody wants to appropriate the moral high ground whenever they come to an issue of public debate. We're worrying too much. We should worry, but I think we're worrying too much about teens. And the reason I say we're worrying too much about teens is that we're not really worrying enough about people who are the acclimatized smokers, people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who have been smoking combustible products for a couple of decades. Young people today 
are not going to die in large numbers from lung cancer and cardiovascular disease, even if they continue vaping. However, if we don't focus upon the people who are 30 and 40 or 45 and 50 who are habituated smokers, they will most certainly die on average several years beforehand. So the, the sad thing about this debate is we have lost track of the well-being of the people who will lose several years of their life because they are committed smokers. I would much prefer to see a campaign, a really virulent campaign directed to people who are uh, dependent upon combustible tobacco products and get them off those products by any means possible, whether it be by vaping, by means of drugs, nicotine replacement therapy, uh, nicotine pouches, anything you want that would get them away from combustible products. So um, our concern with teens is first of all uh, excessive and second it is misdirecting a lot of our attention away from the fact that we've got huge numbers of people who will die unnecessarily unless they get off uh, uh, smoking. How come Health Canada doesn't understand this and I think what strikes me here and it was in, in the lead is that we just went through five, six, seven years of a process of, of, of going through these very issues. So, you know, is the trade-off in terms of providing, um, you know, nicotine alternatives like vaping, is that, you know, better to have that than, you know, in a population addicted to combustible cigarettes? I mean, this is the very thing about why the regulations were passed in the first place. This is like deja vu. Yeah. <laughs> Um, as I said, any way you can get people off smoking is a good way of getting people off smoking. I think that um, I, I don't know if it's the case that Health Canada really believes itself that it is putting all of the emphasis in the right place or whether it feels subject to an enormous amount of pressure, whether it be from parents, uh, the constituents of members of parliament, uh, the government of the day. I don't really know what is driving the philosophy in Health Canada. Um, there are lots of smart people. There are lots of very good scientists in, in Health Canada. Um, but Health Canada publicly has certainly thrown its lot in with the concern over teen vaping uh, much more. And, I'm, and I, don't want to, I don't want to give the impression here that I believe that Health Canada is not interested in the well-being of people who are smokers. But I think what we really need is a hyperactive program directed towards smokers and to get them off cigarettes any way possible. We're also losing too much time in talking about whether e-cigarettes are the best way to quit smoking. It doesn't really matter what the best way to quit smoking is. Um, there's lots of evidence that e-cigarettes are a very effective way of getting off smoking. But no matter whether you go and take drugs from your family uh, as a result of um, taking a consultation with your family doctor, or whether you get nicotine replacement therapy from a pharmacist, uh, whether you use e-cigarettes, whether you use nicotine pouches, whether you use nicotine gum or lozenges, all of these ways, any way that is successful in getting somebody off a combustible product is a good way. And we shouldn't be lost in a false or a misdirected debate 
on which of these different methods is the best. My view about um, vaping, uh, nicotine consumption in general, is that we should not socially think of vaping simply as an exit ramp from nicotine and tobacco. If people want to consume nicotine, then they are not consuming the carcinogens and they are not running the risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke, then we should tolerate and allow and permit people to consume nicotine if the damage from nicotine itself is small. Uh, why did we legalize cannabis, Brent? We legalized cannabis because we wanted to allow people to consume a product that gave them a sense of well-being. We didn't legalize cannabis because it was an exit ramp for heroin or methadone, did we? we? We just legalized it and said, well, it's not the best thing. We don't advocate it for you. But if it gives you comfort or solace or whatever you want to say, then by all means, go ahead and consume it. You won't do yourself too much harm. You will do yourself some harm if you smoke cannabis because you're smoking a combustible product that you know has carcinogens in it. But we tolerate that because we say, well, it's better to have it legal than not have it legal. And we're not going to express moral outrage at you if you smoke cannabis. So why is it that we express moral outrage at people who want to vape? They're consuming a less toxic product than cannabis. All to say that I don't see that we should think of vaping or any of these alternative nicotine products as just an exit ramp for smoking. We should think of them as an exit ramp for smoking, a quitting mechanism. And we should also think of them as a substitute product that people can continue to use for very long periods of time. Now, you're obviously, numbers is your business, right? When you took a look at the teen vaping numbers, the so-called teen vaping epidemic, just reiterate for me, was there an epidemic? Is there an epidemic? I mean, was there a real problem with teen vaping? Youth today engages in a much lower level of risk than we did, or certainly than I did when I and my cohorts were, were teens. If you, if you look at the data from drug surveys, say, for example, in the Ontario Drug Use uh, Survey in high schools, what you find is the incidence of drunkenness over the last five, six, seven years has gone down. The incidence of binge drinking has gone down. Uh, kids are hugely more reluctant to get into a car nowadays with somebody who has been drinking or um, consuming cannabis. The rate at which they're willing to get into a car with a driver who has been drinking or smoking weed is about half of what it was 10 years ago. So kids are much more aware of dangers. They're, they're not naive. And I like to think that this um, tendency or this habit of vaping rather than smoking is in a certain sense, a reflection of the fact that they are much wiser than we were than I was when I was a kid, because over the spectrum, they're consuming about the same amount of weed. Their consumption of hard drugs has gone down, less drunkenness. Overall, they are engaging in much less risky behaviors. So we shouldn't think upon them as being the hapless victims, you know, of, of big tobacco. A more productive way of looking at them, I think, is to see them as being much smarter than previous generations and engaging in much lower risk behaviors than, than we did. So don't be pessimistic about youth. 
um, be positive about them. One of the regulatory consultations that have come out that Health Canada is considering right now is lowering the nicotine concentrations. And you've done some writing on this, fairly prominent writing over the last couple of months. What do you think about nicotine concentration? Is it a good idea to restrict it? I think we do need to do all of what we can to restrict access for teens to vaping products. Uh, I'm not convinced that reducing the nicotine concentration is going to be beneficial in the long run because um, when smokers want to quit, uh, particularly people who are dependent upon cigarettes, and if you give them an alternative product and you say, okay, this is going to satisfy your craving for, for nicotine, you really want to be able to supply enough nicotine to them so that it can satisfy their their craving for the product and so i think that the the uh the difficulty with them with reducing the nicotine concentration level from its current level of 60 66 milligrams per milliliter down to 20 is that when smokers begin to experiment with vaping products, they're going to find a vaping product that is much less satisfactory for them in the future if this concentration limit is imposed than they find right now. Because right now, when they, uh, when they transfer it over, um, they get a nicotine high from a vaping product that is almost as high, not quite, almost as high on average as the nicotine hit that they get from a cigarette. And so that's another feature of an electronic cigarette that after a couple of, after a couple of vapes, you can get a little nicotine charge, right? And then it diminishes just like when you walk out of the office and you take a cigarette, you take a couple of puffs, you get a nicotine charge out of it and then, and then you're happy. So the people who are transitioning over, if, if they can't get something like what they're getting from the combustible cigarette, then they're much more likely to fail in their transition over to an e-cigarette and away from the combustible product. So why is Health Canada all set on it? Uh, Health Canada is set on it because uh, they got they got a firm to a survey firm to do to carry out a survey of youth use, and they decided that too many young people were liking the strong hit that they got from the um, the higher nicotine concentration products. So I think that's really what has been driving Health Canada. I'm, I'm looking at this from the outside because I read their proposal very thoroughly and I, I wrote up a response and I sent the response to Health Canada. And I said, you know, this, you really got to think about what you're doing here. You got to think about the bigger picture. And once again, I fear that, you know, we're thinking about, we're thinking about the kids and we're putting much too small of a weight upon those people who really urgently need to be dragged away from combustible products. They're the ones who are going to die. You know, the kids, if they vape are not going to die. They may lose a few months of their life. They may use a year of, the, of their life, but they're not going to lose 10 years. And so we're putting all of our attention, uh, attention there. And we're forgetting about the fact that if we, if we don't do something really dramatic, we're going to continue on, continue in having uh, high premature death rates for people who are lifelong smokers. So you just said it, that it's a life and death issue here. And so if the survey with regarding, you know, nicotine concentrations is what's driving 
potentially this lowering down to 20. Okay, well, let's just pack that aside there for a second. Now, what about flavors? I thought flavors were the real reason why teens use vaping products. Uh, why, why do teens do anything that, you know, their parents disapprove of? Uh, I don't know if you're a parent. I am. And, uh, you know, t teen, teens, uh, you know, evolve in a way that uh, such so that they were they were meant to rebel. Right. So they um, they they find things to do that they're not supposed to do. It may be going out and drinking beer in the park. It may be going out and meeting up surreptitiously with their girlfriend or boyfriend. It, it may be the fact that they uh, take cannabis with, while they're, when they're underage. It may be the case that they're, they're, they're vaping. So um, kids do lots of things to kick up their heels and show their displeasure over authority. So um, would, would kids not vape? Would they not do anything wrong if we reduced the flavor palette? I don't know. Would they try to get flavors for their vaping products from friends, uh, older friends who will undoubtedly start mixing flavors with the e-liquid that they will buy in the vape shop? Uh, flavors, can, flavors can be added to the e-liquid, and that's what's going to happen if they bring in a flavor ban. So I'm not sure if, flavor, if, if, if a flavor ban is, is, is really going to stop teens from vaping. Uh, teens certainly like flavors. Uh, there's no doubt about that, and most of them do use flavors when they vape. To say that to go from saying yes, we observe that teens like flavors to saying that teens vape because of flavors, well, the logicians what might give you a hard time over that one because we don't really know what they're going to do if we cut down on the number of flavors that's going to be available to them. They might start going out and mixing their own flavors and really you don't want young people playing with nicotine. Um, it's not a substance that's good to work with. When I start looking at this and I just go, okay, so the, the teen issue is there. So cut the flavors uh, because teens like flavors, cut the nicotine because teens like nicotine, and then let's tax the hell out of it None of this picture, Ian, says to me that there is any support for this industry within government or the regulator anymore. It's, but it's, um, even though we're focusing on teens here in relation to flavors, it's also the case that adults use flavors. Relatively few adults use what we call a tobacco-like flavor. Relatively few, maybe 15% of um, vapors I don't know if I said smokers or vapors a moment ago, I meant to say vapors, but rel a relatively small number of vapors use um, what we call nicotine, or what we call tobacco type flavors. There was a very um, widely recognized editorial uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine oh, a year or two ago, and it was signed by a number of people. And they said, well, we can see no reason why we would legalize any flavor other than the tobacco flavor if people are accustomed to to that kind of a, a flavor when they're smoking, then they should be content and happy with that kind of a flavor when they, they come to vaping. But adults show us that, that the story is not quite so easy. Uh, the vast majority of adults go for a flavor. And I think it's it's partly to give them something a little bit, give them satisfaction with something that's a little bit novel about the product that they are trying to, to move to. And it may well be the case that um, just as if we decrease the 
nicotine concentration in e-cigarettes, uh, if we reduce the number of flavors that are available, a smaller number of adults may decide to uh, adopt vaping products instead of cigarettes. And we really do not know to what extent kids will not vape if we limit the, the flavors there. An interesting part in all of this, and per perhaps you're aware of it, I only learned it very recently as a result of being informed of it by uh, one of the producers in the industry, the uh, tobacco flavor, or what is called tobacco flavor, doesn't really come from the tobacco plant at all. It's just a mixture of chocolate and cocoa and coffee and cinnamon and allspice, and they get, uh, mix all of these flavors together and they get something resembling uh, a tobacco flavor, but that's what it is. It's, it's a mixture of um, other flavors that together are something like tobacco, but it's not tobacco. So obviously supply and demand, a uh, big part of uh, being an economist. So when you look at the supply and demand issues around say flavors, how does, how does that equation work for you? I do not know. I really do not know. I've talked to a couple of people in the uh, vaping business, a couple of people who run vaping stores and one or two suppliers. And when I say, what's going to happen when they bring in the flavor ban and they say, well, you know, the nicotine concentration is going to hit us hard. Taxes are going to hit us hard, but we're afraid of being wiped out by the flavor ban. And so that's the way the industry people uh, see it because virtually everything they, they ship has a flavor to it. So if you cut down on 80 or 90% of what's permitted in flavors, it's really anybody's guess as to what's going to happen out there. We really don't know. And I think that it would be very unfortunate for the health of the country if um, the vaping industry were to shrink down to nothing because there wouldn't be much there in the in the private sector, in the decentralized world, there wouldn't be much there for, for smokers to go to. And this is a real danger. And once again, you know, we're, we're focusing upon the teens, the soccer moms and the soccer, soccer dads who are pressuring their members of parliament, and this is coming through. And, you know, we're forgetting about the needs of the people who are going to die prematurely. <laughs> and the people who are going to die prematurely uh, when they move over, and when they succeed, or when they would die prematurely, but they succeed in moving over to vaping, they usually adopt a flavored product. Will they, uh, will they, will they move over in uh, the same numbers from smoking if we, A, reduce the nicotine concentration, B, put an excise tax on, and C, limit the flavors? Uh, it's very optimistic to think that we're going to be able to use vaping to get a lot of um, a lot of smokers off cigarettes when you add all of these things up together. So it's a, it's a worrying future. And in a way, what we're doing is we're not utilizing a very effective way of getting people to improve their health by bringing all of these restrictions together down onto this alternative product. Let me ask you, what do we know about va the vaping market in Canada in terms of revenue, jobs, number of companies? Uh, I don't know how many people are involved. I do know that there are about 1,400 uh, individual 
vape shops across the country. That's that's a number that people in the industry have given to me. We know that almost half or approximately half of the vaping market comes from these small locally owned or, well, sometimes people will own a few stores. But by and large, it's, a, it's an industry which is domestically rooted. It's owned by people here who, who work in them. The uh, e-liquid is produced within Canada. So it is a, it's a very strong domestic industry. About 20% of sales are online. And a lot of those online sales are associated with vape shops. Sometimes they're only online enterprises. And we know that about maybe a third of all of the vape sales come through the gas and convenience stores. And that third is made up almost exclusively of um, the pod, the pre-filled pod products that are supplied by the international tobacco tobacco companies. Um, but I, it's the, your point, perhaps, is that uh, vaping is is not an industry that is in the complete control of these, um, you know, ev evil corporations, shall we say, for want of a better word, that's not, it's not really accurate. Very frequently, the vaping industry is portrayed as, as yet another example of bad behavior on the part of tobacco companies. Tobacco companies are involved in vaping, and they all say that they are committed to changing their product line from combustible products to non-combustible products over the next decade. Um, but I think historically tobacco companies haven't been very honest with us and right up to the current era, people distrust them. And so even if they produce a product that's a, a fraction as risky as the, their main product, that people are automatically suspicious of them. The fact that they have uh, not told us the truth in the past shouldn't be a reason for us to blind ourselves to the fact that vaping is by and large a grassroots, grassroots industry in, 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 in Canada. So the federal excise tax, as it's been suggested right now from the government, is not as draconian as what was implemented in Nova Scotia, which was, was quite bad. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to compare them because they, it's hard to compare them precisely because they work in slightly different ways. But yes, I, I would say that's an accurate, an accurate statement. What they have proposed is a fairly simple tax, what they proposed in the budget, and that's a dollar per 10, 10 milliliters. Now, there, it's going to be very inequitable because it's going, there's going to be a dollar whether you buy a 10 milliliter bottle or $3 if you buy a 30 milliliter bottle or $6 if you buy a 60 milliliter bottle, but they're also going to levy that $1 charge on each individual pod. So it's going to be 10, a 10 milliliter container or less. So when you come to Juul and Views and, and all of these producers who uh, supply ready filled pods, they contain less than uh, one milliliter. I think the Juul pod is 0.7 of a milliliter. The Views pod is almost two milliliters. So it's going to be the same tax whether you buy 10 milliliters in a vape shop in a bottle or whether you buy an individual pod, which is less than one milliliter. So the, the tax per volume is going to be 10 times uh, when you buy in the form of a pod rather than when you buy in the form of liquid in a bottle. So uh, there are there are certain inequities. There are certain inequities there, if you want to use that word. If they go ahead with that kind of a system, I'm I'm trying to write up um, 
a proposal to send to the Department of Finance at the, at the moment on this. It would really be very good if the, the federal government could get together with the provinces and ha hammer out an agreement which says, okay, we're not going to overtax this product uh, because first of all, it's not nearly as dangerous as cigarettes. So there should be a much, much lower tax on it. And we also uh, want to get an agreement between the provinces and the federal government because the federal government doesn't want to be in a position where it says, we'll keep our tax rates low. And then the provinces jump in and say, oh, there's this extra space we can occupy and they put in a high tax rate there and then you've got the disincentive effects in the marketplace. So cooperation is going to be very important between the federal and uh, provincial governments in setting whatever excise levies are ultimately agreed to. Now your work is obviously very prominent. You've, you know, we have stuff published in Globe and Mail. There are huge thick reports, you know, that you guys have put together and put out for the C.D. Howe Institute. And uh, some of that has attracted some attention. Uh, just recently, Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada posted some material a bit criticizing your connections with, I guess, big tobacco is what they're alluding to. I, I'm not exactly yeah, certain yeah, yeah. what they're trying to do there. I, well, I read their criticism online, and I gathered that the, the criticism that they posted online on the Globe and Mail is now on the... Um, the website of the Physicians for a Smoke-Free Canada. And um, that criticism uh, focused uh, primarily on me and it, it uh, portrayed me as a, a bit of a villain. And it didn't really take issue with the ideas I presented in the Globe and Mail op-ed piece. In the Globe and Mail op-ed piece, I suggested that um, whatever taxes whatever excise taxes are uh, come into being or are put in place by the federal government or the provincial governments, those excise tax rates should reflect relative risk um, features of the different products. In other words, if you've got a low risk product, then you should tax it less than a high risk product. So why was I attacked? Um, I was attacked because I wrote um, a report that was funded by the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. And it was an attempt to understand the, the history of tobacco decline in Canada. And in my op-ed piece, I neglected to, sometimes people make disclosures, sometimes they don't. I neglected to make a disclosure and perhaps I was at fault there, but, but let me continue. The, the piece I, I wrote that was uh, funded by the um, Foundation for a Smoke-Free World was at points full of praise for Health Canada and the government in trying to develop a, an anti-smoking culture. And it it was not, and I can assure you, it was not in praise of tobacco companies. I did in that report uh, analyze the role that vaping products have played recently, and I did come out with a view that vaping products have been uh, a, a strong magnet for youth. And what has happened is youth have taken up vaping products instead of tobacco. Well, it's not ideal, but it's a heck of a lot better than smoking than than, than smoking cigarettes. Um, uh, so they criticized me for having uh, accepted. Uh, uh, a remuneration for producing for producing that report, which is out in the in the public domain, and the reason uh, I, the, the reason they do not like the Foundation for a Smoke Free World is because it is funded uh, by a grant from Philip Morris, and so what Philip Morris did was they got they got this person from who was a, a 
one of the chief operatives in the World Health Organization in the tobacco field. And he no longer had faith in the more traditional approaches to limiting uh, cigarette juice and he took the job as being director of the foundation for a smoke-free world so not surprisingly you know if you if you don't like cigarette companies it's uh, it's very easy to say well we don't like the foundation for a uh, smoke-free world this is just a front for tobacco companies but in fact the uh, the terms of reference for the foundation are all laid out and the purpose of it is to encourage an understanding of alternative nicotine delivery systems and to encourage people to get away from tobacco products. So I did not write a, a long disclosure, but I should also say that um, in addition, and they did not write this in their criticism, in addition, I have worked for uh, Revenue Canada on, uh, on alcohol. I've worked for the Competition Bureau on alcohol. I've worked for Health Canada on smoking, believe it or not. I was involved in a study on plain packaging back in the in the 1990s. So I, I have worked across the spectrum here. Uh, but when uh, that criticism was written of me, they neglected to go back and look at some of the earlier work that I had written in which and in one of which it's made very clear that the origin of the work was um, was Health Canada. I think information is really important to smokers. I think uh, a, lot, a lot of smokers want to quit, but I also think that uh, I, it's not a question of thinking. I know from the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey that most smokers are unaware of the enormous difference in the toxicity levels between combustible cigarettes and alternative nicotine delivery systems. They've got this vague idea, you know, that e-cigarettes are no more dangerous than combustible cigarettes. They might be a little bit less toxic, but the percentage of mature smokers who are aware of the fact that uh, e-cigarettes have at most 5% of the toxins that combustible cigarettes have, that's an extraordinarily small fraction of existing smokers. So you really got to get into the minds of smokers and say, we're going to give you information, we're going to personalize that to you, and we're going to get you to think about moving away from combustibles to non-combustibles and really help them with that. But they, they can't seem to they can't they can't seem to make that I, I don't think Health Canada has the ability to make that transition because they I think the powers that be in Health Canada view vaping as negatively and so it would be hard for them to change their worldview and come around to saying well here's a positive message for you on the back of the cigarette pack to complement the negative message in the front i think i think too many important people in health canada would have difficulty seeing that i would love to think i'm wrong and if there's anybody in health canada who sees or listens to what we're saying today please do contact me if you had one minute with health canada or the health minister what would the message be Oh boy, one minute. It would be really hard for me to summarize all of what I have to say in, in one minute. I would say, don't be obsessed about teenagers. Don't be depressed about teenagers. They're doing much better than you think they are. 
And what you really need to do is to balance this concern with a much greater concern for the people who are dependent on tobacco. They are the people who are going to die prematurely unless we get them off tobacco and let's focus our energies on them and try to think of all of the policies you're adopting in terms of the people who are dependent smokers, not just the kids who are consuming a product that is much less toxic than the product that the smokers are consuming.